This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, where we help you learn to invest in 15 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividends so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Alec, and today I'm once again not joined by my equity buddy Bryce. Today's episode is a new one for Equity Mates. Unfortunately, Bryce has been slammed at work, so we haven't had a chance to record, and that's why you're hearing me do the intro solo. So what we're doing today is releasing one of our favorite episodes of all time. It was in the early days of Equity Mates, 18 months ago now, so if you've only just joined us, you may not have heard it. If you have already heard it, I hope that you can get something out of re-listening to it. The episode we're replaying is episode 18, where we sat down and talked to ABC Finance reporter Alan Kohler. If you're like Bryce and I, you would have grown up watching Alan on the 7pm nightly news and known Alan for his charts. Prior to working at the ABC, Alan had a long and storied career in financial journalism, including as the editor of the Australian Financial Review. In this interview, we discuss his personal journey and his thoughts on the markets today. We also touch on some other hot topics, including Australian housing and cryptocurrency. When you're listening to these sections, keep in mind this interview is from 2017. I hope you enjoy this interview, and barring any unforeseen surprises, you can expect to hear both Bryce and I live in your podcast feeds next Monday. Until then, enjoy. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Equity mates, welcome to episode 18, a podcast where we break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend to make it easy for you. I'm here on a lovely Saturday morning, as always, joined by my equity mates, buddy Ren. How are you, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. How are you? Good, good. Bombers swans today. Very keen for that. And you are the Bombers. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. And yes, looking forward to this episode. We sat down with Alan Kohler last weekend down in Melbourne. We had a great chat to him. Uh, Do you want to give a bit of a spiel, Ren? Yeah, okay. So for Australians, there's probably no name or face more synonymous with investing or financial journalism than Alan Kohler. So he's had a long history in finance and journalism, including being the editor of the Australian Financial Review for a few years in the 80s. Uh, And he now does the financial section of the 7 o'clock ABC News and does his weekly weekend overview. That's a much anticipated must read for the financial community. So in my house growing up, we always watch the 7 o'clock news and Alan was known as the graph man as he's become known for his interesting and insightful charts that he shows viewers. So we were lucky enough to sit down with Alan and discuss all things charts and investing. Hope you guys enjoy it. Well, great to be here with you, Alan. I'm very excited. We've been watching you on TV for oh, since I was young, so it's good to be in the same room with you. Still young, if I can. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Certainly compared to me. <laughs> so, Alan, you're known for your charts, charts for charts' sake. I'm just wondering to kick it off, uh, what's your favourite chart? Well, I think my favourite chart is one that was produced by Andy Haldane, who was the Chief Economist of the Bank of England, which was um, a chart of interest rates back to the, the year 3000 BC, which was great. Yeah. I mean, it was, I don't know, they, he, he asked somebody in his, on his staff to figure it out, mm-hmm. what interest rates were um, over the past uh, five millennia, and um, he came up with it, and apparently interest rates, the, um, uh, the bond rate... Uh, was uh, 20%. 
in uh, ancient Egypt. I wonder how you calculate interest rates back then. No, no central banks or anything. Uh, certainly not. And yeah. um, but I presume there was some you know hieroglyphics or you know, <laughs> <laughs> rock some rock tablets, carvings, yeah. which uh, explained that um, people were charging interest for loans, and yeah. they must have tracked it down. There you go. Wow. Really, is a profession as old as time. But um, but the point of the the point of the chart was to show that interest rates now are the lowest they've ever been in five thousand years. Wow. So I guess let's um, start with a bit about your background. So had, had you always wanted to be a financial journalist and where did that interest in investing in finance come from? Uh, I wanted to be a journalist yep. uh, when I was at high school and um, I uh, didn't go to university. I got a job as a journalist on The Australian when I was 18 uh, and in those days we're talking early 70s. From, it was 1970 when I turned 18. What you did was a cadetship mm-hmm. so it was like an apprenticeship. Uh, and that's what I did. And it just happened to be that that um, job that I got was on the finance section of the Australian. And that's kind of where I stayed. So then you obviously had an interest in it that made you stay. I developed an interest in it. Yeah, right. I didn't, I mean, what I had an interest in at that point was being a journalist mm. and writing. But as I say, I, I sort of got a job there. I, I then, having after I did my cadetship, I then left and travelled. And I got to all, all sorts of different jobs as journalist. Uh, covering courts, police rounds, covering sport, uh, both uh, around Australia and uh, in England. Uh, So various things. Came back to Australia eventually and got a job back as a financial journalist again in 1979 and then basically stayed and I kind of, um, uh, from there, became editor of the Financial Review in the 1980s, Um, became editor of The Age in 1992 and then I went on from there. So, um, I mean, obviously I've done a lot of reading, a lot of studying. You know, you don't have to go to university in order to study. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I, I taught myself. So at what age did you start personally investing? And Well, I didn't have any money for quite a while. I mean, I was a <laughs> journalist with no money, so I didn't, yeah. like, I mean, I'm... I'm uh, and after a while, I kind of decided to run my own super fund and um, have been investing that, I guess. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I, I sort of slowly took on investing because I you know, started to understand how to do it and thought it would be a good idea and did it. But I'm not, I, I mean, I'm fundamentally a journalist, not an investor. Yeah, yeah. So we, when you started with your super fund and got more interested in investing, what were some of the hardest things you found about getting started? Well, I'd already, I mean, I, I kind of came at it from a different direction in the sense that I already understood it all. Yeah. My, my, uh, my four-year cadetship essentially was covering the stock exchange. Okay. From the age of 18, 18 to 22, (laughs) four years, I, uh, in those days, the stock exchange was an actual physical thing, Mm. not a computer thing. There was actually people on the floor shouting out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I spent my four years there. There's a press gallery overlooking the floor at the stock exchange, and um, that's what I spent those four years doing. Wow. Uh, and mixing with stockbrokers and you know, talking to them about... So I, I got a pretty good understanding uh, early on mm. of how to do it and what was going on and yeah. how, the, how the system worked. From the experience you had in, at the Stock Exchange and from the many people that you would have spoken to in your career, are there any characteristics that stick out to you amongst the sort of successful investors? One of them is don't be too greedy. So to actually be satisfied with a, a reasonable return uh, in return for reasonable risk, so you know you can't get a return without taking some risk. But if you, you know, if you are expecting to double your money and trying to double your money, then you're probably taking too much risk. And so uh, I remember when I started, it was kind of during the Poseidon boom. During that time, I, people started to get very greedy, and they were kind of doubling their money overnight, and you know, making lots of money, uh, and then everyone lost everything because it busted. Mm. You know, and so you know, you, you sort of I came to. A, uh, a pretty clear understanding that how how brutal the share market can be, you know. Uh, also, 1987 was uh, yeah. incredibly brutal, and then 2008. I mean, I've seen a number of busts mm. where people thought that everything was fine, and then it wasn't, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, it's really a matter of kind of having a clear understanding of the risks you're taking, um, and to not think that um, you know that, that everything's going to be always fine because it has been for the last little while. In fact, in some ways, the longer you go with everything fine, the likely, more likely it is that you kind of um, come a cropper at some point. Mm. 
So building off that, for our listeners who are you know early into their investing journey, is there any advice that you have for them to sort of set them on the right path or anything that you would wish you knew when you were starting out? I wish I had a clearer understanding of compound interest. I mean, it really, I mean, when you, the, the, the fantastic thing about being young is that you're able to harness the power of compound interest. But the thing to understand about that is that it really starts to come into its own after a decade or two. You know, it takes a while yeah. and you have to be patient. Mm. Um, but the other thing is uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to settle for subpar returns. It is possible to, particularly if you're long-term. I mean, one of the things about being young is that if you're saving for retirement, that's 30 or 40 years away. And the, the, the ups and downs in the meantime don't matter. So uh, I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. Um, a lot of people equate risk with volatility particularly professional investors, for them, when they talk about risk, they refer to, um, the, you know, the, the volatility, the ups and downs that are along the way. And um, uh, that doesn't matter to somebody who's young and saving for a long time. Yeah. Um, it matters to a professional investor because they're getting judged every quarter or every month. Yeah. And so, you know, you're only as good as your last quarter. Yeah. And so for them, that's important. But for young people, Risk is not volatility. Risk is losing your money. Yeah, yeah. That's what you need to guard against. Yeah. And so, um, if I was if I was young again, you know, I would <laughs> I would find somebody earning who has a track record of earning fifteen percent uh, annual returns, mm. who knows how to do that. Yeah. And I'd give them my money, yeah. and I'd use uh, what's called dollar cost averaging um, to uh, basically. Save, which is to say, you put in a certain amount, a fixed amount of money. You put a fixed amount of money in each month into something or other, whether it's um, you know whether it's units in a trust or a particular company or a group of companies. And then you, um, uh, because it's a fixed amount of money, you buy more uh, when the price is down, and you buy less when the price is up, um, which is the right thing to do. When something's more expensive, you should buy less. When something's cheaper, you should buy more, and that's what dollar cost averaging achieves for you. So if you do that over time and you uh, harness the power of compound interest, um, you, re- you will retire very comfortable. But the question is whether anybody who's in their 20s can actually be bothered yeah. <laughs> doing that. I yeah. get that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like it's you've got right. a house to buy, you know, you've got travel to do, mm. you know, you've got you got nice breakfast to eat. No, yeah, it's good, it's good advice, and that's what we're trying to encourage um, people our age to start at least thinking about that sort of stuff. Yeah, my, one of my big problems is with the way the system works at the moment is people go into a super fund in their 20s, uh, which on the whole uh, earn about 5% per annum, mm. which is okay. And if you end up, you know, if you ch- if you do 5% per annum over, your, over the course of your life, you'll end up with, you know, maybe a million bucks. But the difference between 5% and even 10% mm, yeah. over 40 years mm. is phenomenal. You know, and, it, and you don't even have to settle for 10. You can achieve 15% if you get the right fund manager and, and, you know, and, and uh, play it correctly. Mm. So what are your thoughts on going with a fund manager versus putting it in an index, which is something that, say, an investor like Warren Buffett always talks about? Like, Do you, have, do you see them as the same? Or? Well, I've just written, I've written yeah. a piece for Saturdays Australian. I don't like index ETFs and index funds. I think it's a bad idea. Okay, can you explain? Well, because um, you just if with an ETF or an index fund, you're you're buying you're effectively buying shares uh, according to their size. The bigger a company is, the more money you're putting into it. Because the index funds and the ETFs uh, uh, invest according to the you know to the index, mm-hmm. the weightings of the index, right? And that's on market capitalization. So you end up investing in large companies mostly. And large companies will not give you a decent return. They just won't mm. over time. I mean, you'll get the market return, um, which over the long term is 7 or 8% per annum. Um, and in my view, that's not good enough. You can, like I've just been looking at a fund manager this morning who's good at picking stocks, and they have achieved um, uh, high 20s wow. returns. Now, um, you wouldn't want to put all your eggs in one fund manager basket, mm. But, uh, but it is possible to achieve that kind of return by people who, who choose good companies, mm. invest in, you know, and choose them, That's, and not just invest according to size, which is what an ETF is. Interesting. So uh, I'm kind of, I'm disgusted with Warren Buffett, actually. I think that um, uh, he's suggesting people do uh, exactly what he hasn't done. 
yeah, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, but yeah, I did. Um, I did read that article um, when we were preparing for this interview, and um, I also read another article that came out today about uh, land tax over income tax. So it, it seems you're putting some provocative thoughts out there to to get people thinking about finance and the structure around the Australian economy. Well, my view is that having a, a column in a national newspaper is a privilege, mm. um, and uh, I, I might as well. I, I mean, I should use it. Um, to get people thinking. Yeah. To, I mean, there's no point writing the bleeding obvious or just, you know, writing boring stuff, mm. you know. Yeah, definitely. You've got to say something. Yeah, yeah. So I've always had that view in, in journalism that, you you know, you've got this position, you've, you're paid to write, which is kind of a great thing to be able to do, particularly if you're in a you know, national newspaper, which has got a lot of readership, and, you know, you've got to, you have a responsibility to use it. Mm. Yeah. Do you, so with the land tax uh, idea, uh, and just for our listeners, it was essentially that uh, if you tax uh, landowners on the value of their land rather than workers on the income that they're generating, that leads to a more equitable economy. Is that a fair assessment of the the argument that was put forward? Yeah. So a lot of people are talking at the moment about universal basic income or some way of compensating those who lose their jobs out of automation. Mm-hmm. And we're we're moving from a period of uh, of replacing manufacturing jobs with robotics to replacing blue collar jobs with artificial intelligence, probably. Yeah. And so people like Elon Musk and others are saying we need to do something about that because you know this is a huge challenge. I think Elon Musk called artificial intelligence more of a threat than North Korea. Um, uh, also, it's the case, if you look at the stats, that uh, wages growth is very low, productivity is low, um, there's lots of issues yeah. with the economy um, which are puzzling to everybody. Um, um, so uh, on the other side of things, the governments are failing really to uh, fund themselves properly. They're all underwater and massive deficits, um, including Australia. And if we, if we are uh, moving to a stage of uh, lower employment, which is probably the case, then taxing labour is um, going to prove to be a dead end. Um, so we've already shifted a fair bit of taxation uh, to um, consumption through uh, VATs and GSTs, GST in Australia, VAT in America, in England and so on. So there's been a big shift towards consumption, taxing of consumption, because of the inadequacy of labour. And um, uh, people like someone, Bill Gates said, well, we need to start thinking about taxing robots. Well, actually... Uh, robots are owned by companies, mm-hmm. so what you're talking about there is taxing companies. Yeah. Um, and so there is um, a view that we need to start shifting towards taxing companies. However, the trend at the moment is towards reducing company tax, not increasing it. Um, and that's with good reason, because capital is so mobile that companies, it's very difficult to tax companies. And so taxing various types of income, in some ways ta- company tax is just another form of GST too. You're sort of withholding tax at that point, it's passed on in prices of goods. And so you've got GST, you've got company tax, which are essentially taxes on consumption. You've got taxes on labour, uh, which are failing. Company tax is failing because um, the big global multinationals like Apple and Facebook and Google and so on are able to get out of it too easily. So we've got to come up with something else. Mm. And the one thing that's completely immobile that you cannot move <coughs> is land. Yeah. Um, and uh, taxing land... Um, means that that uh, um, means that the more land you own, the more tax you pay. Yeah. And um, rich people own a lot, a lot of land. Yeah. Yeah. Now I referred in that piece to Henry George, who actually came up with all this yeah. 150 years ago um, when he published a book called Progress and Poverty. And he, you know, there was the Henry George League. There's George. You know, there's a lot of people who followed this who he proposed at the time we should have land taxes. Uh, and in some ways, what happened then in the late 19th century is uh, exactly what ha- is happening now. There was uh, a lot of inequality, um, uh, a lot of technology at the time, you know, steam engines, you know, railroads, what we regard as kind of not, you know, old stuff now mm. was then new technology. Yeah. And he was writing about how new technology was not actually uh, providing good living for people. It was not... Um, leading to higher productivity. It was was not dealing with inequality. And so he was proposing at the time a land tax. And so, I mean, I, and I sort of was reminded of it because it was um, Henry George's birthday on Saturday. Okay, yeah. Good time to write the article. Yeah, well, that's yeah. right. For, for all our listeners out there, the game Monopoly was actually originally created with two sets of rules. and It was called the Landlord's Game, and it was to show the effect of a land tax 
you know, the property owners in Monopoly, they would be paying tax and the game just didn't end and it was much more equitable with all players still having some level of income. Um, but then Hasbro got rid of that set of rules because people want to win the board games that they play. <laughs> but it's, um, it's interesting that, yeah, you know, that idea is sort of coming back in vogue, as you said, as all these trends sort of rear their head again. Technological innovation, inequality, and all that. That's right. So it's yeah, it was really interesting to read this morning. Yeah. So back to the charts that I mentioned earlier at the start. Um, there, charts are obviously a great way of illustrating trends and and what's happened in the past. So we're wondering, have your use of charts always been a strategy, or has it been something that's evolved over time? Uh, well, the story for that is, um, uh, like a lot of things, things happen by accident. I joined the ABC back in 1995. First seven years was on the 7.30 report as a, as a reporter. And then they said, why don't you go on the news, 2002. And at the time, though, they were introducing two national segments onto the news, finance and sport. Oh. And Peter Wilkins did sport as a national thing, right? And they made, um, uh, they made both my segment and Peter Wilkins' segment mandatory. So the way the ABC News works is it's a federation. And each state has yeah. control of what it puts to air, right? Except uh, certain things, not many things, are regarded as mandatory and they have to run them. And so they introduced national finance and national sport, which were mandatory. And they decreed that the two things would include uh, both me and Peter Wilkins doing a presentation, but also showing video footage, okay. right? And um, Wilkins had no problem finding video footage of sport, <laughs> right? tons of it. Yeah. But I couldn't get any video footage. Yeah, yeah. It was hopeless. Yeah. So they said, go and find video footage. And I said, oh, God. So occasionally there's, occasionally there's a press conference, mm. but it's some boring middle-aged man mm. talking. Yeah. And so I did that for a couple of weeks and thought, this is hopeless. It wasn't, wasn't working. Um, it was too hard to find. So I thought, what, can, what else can I do? And the answer was, I'll try charts. So I started using charts, which I've always kind of thought were a terrific way of understanding history really, uh, and correlations. The two things that charts do for you is they tell you what happened in history mm. in a very visual way, and they also help you understand correlations uh, where they exist. Um, sometimes you can you can portray correlations that don't exist, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's, that's how that came about. Right. And so, it's just kicked on ever since? Well, I just kind of uh, find a couple of charts every night, and um, it helps people understand what's going on. Mm. Yeah, I think it because I grew grew up watching ABC News, and it definitely makes it more relatable for people who have no finance background. And like our whole family don't have a finance background, and we definitely found that. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> it's good. So I guess you you know you're known for your charts, uh, but do, does your investing does that follow through to your investing? Do you sort of subscribe to technical analysis, and do you use charts to make decisions on what assets to buy and things like that? Um, well, as part of the constant investor. I've also acquired another newsletter called Market Timing. Uh, now, I've never really had much faith in or, or knowledge really about how to use charts to make investment decisions. Um, I've enjoyed charts that tell you lots of stuff, interesting things, but in terms of deciding how to um, base an investment decision or a trading decision on it, I've, I've never really got it. Um, market timing was started by a bloke I know in Sydney called Percy Allen. He uh, lost a lot of money during the GFC, uh, decided that he never wanted that to happen again and he wanted to help other people avoid losing money. So he created this newsletter which was based on charts, on using charts to basically understand uh, momentum, whether the market is tipping over or whether it's bottoming. Okay. And uh, I've since learned, since working with Percy and publishing his newsletter on, on my business, The Constant Investor, I've learned that charts can tell you um, what, trend, what trend is taking place. It, it won't tell you the absolute peak, um, but it'll tell you after it's fallen about 10%, whether it's going to keep falling on the whole, usually. I'm not 100%, but it, it can tell you um, that the market is now trending downwards and it's time to get out or it's trending upwards and it's time to get in. And so what market timing does using charts is to publish uh, buy and sell signals based on charts. Cool. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't do it very often. Like it'll do an average of two signals a year. So oh, not, wow. Okay. Okay, yeah. so we're not doing trading signals like every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, some people use charts every day. Mm. You know, they're looking for minute differences. Yeah. I, don't, I think that's a, um, a train to nowhere, that one. But, mm. but some people swear by it and fine, I don't, you know, good on them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in terms of market timing, we're looking for the big trends 
to protect people from the big crashes. Yeah, okay. And, you know, you can do that. Yeah, definitely. So these charts look at it from a macro approach or...? Well, it's more to do with, um, and I don't know, it's, it's a bit of a black box situation. Percy's kind of... Um, tight-lipped about it all. He's a tight-lipped about it all, but I know that it has to do with moving averages. So if you, you know, and when the when the, the daily chart crosses over a 200-day moving average, right. um, that kind of tells you that the trend is down or up. So talking about your time as the editor of the Financial Review, you you were the editor in the 80s, which was a pretty crazy time in the world of finance, of you know Reaganomics, of high-flying corporate mergers, and then the crash of 87. What was it like following markets then? And do you notice any you know similarities or any glaring differences between then and now? Well, look, it was a great time to be running in a financial newspaper. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, there was something happening every day. I mean, yeah. we had... We had um, uh, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating in power. Mm. They were floating the dollar, deregulating the financial system. Um, there was fantastic stuff yeah. going on all the time, and there was also massive takeovers. Alan Bond, Christopher Scase. So look, you know, there's something going on every day. It was extraordinary time. Mm. Um, so we were running kind of a million miles an hour, and it was, you know, it was exciting. It was great. Um, uh, it's different now. I mean, the, the GFC kind of changed everything. The 1987 crash. Uh, was in in some ways a blip. It was you know the market fell fifty percent, but it was um, it really quickly got back to where it was. Um, so you know if you look at a chart, you know the, the, there's no doubt about it. The, the crash of nineteen eighty seven shows goes up and goes down, and then you can draw a line through it. It's it sort of mm. it was a blip within a kind of a rising trend. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, but the two thousand and eight crash was something different. So the world changed then, and. Um, I mean, obviously, it was exciting in 2008 as well. Lots happening, lots of negative things happening, and that was kind of uh, obviously also an interesting time to be around. But um, it's it's become much less interesting now in some ways. Why is that? Well, it's it's be, it, it seems it feels like it's become much more controlled. Everything's con- more controlled by the central banks. Mm. Um, everyone's also uh, for the last ten years, everyone or all that everyone wants to know about is what's the Fed going to do? What's the central bank going to do? Mm. Uh, what, are, what are interest rates? Are interest rates going to go up or down? You know, that's kind of. I mean, I remember in the eighties that was we didn't care really. That was you know like it, interest rates went up in nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine to seventeen percent and caused a recession and that was obviously terrible. But it felt like it it, it was kind of um, how can I put it? It was. That, that was the first time that I can remember when you know interest rates were really a big deal, a big thing. Otherwise, and the central bank, but even that was to do with the government getting involved. It wasn't really. It just feels so much more boring now with the central bank controlling everything. Mm. You know, and, and volatility has declined. Um, politics seems to have taken over. Politics is interesting, obviously. There's uh, with Donald Trump. Um, you know, you wake up every day with another tweet, and so <laughs> there's plenty of interesting stuff going on in politics. But finance and business, it's a bit more boring. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that's because people are more wary of what happened in 2008 and they're scared that there's going to be a repeat of it? Or I think there's that. Um, you know, look, the markets have been going up and everyone's, well, everyone's made a fair bit of money. The uh, property market's going up with uh, interest rates low. People have been making a fair bit of money out of all that. Um, but it's just it's like uh, politics, although it's interesting in Australia every day, nothing much is getting done. There's right. no real... You know, like in the 80s, stuff was getting done all the time. People were, they, they, the politicians were actually doing things all the time. Not Now they're not. It's just this theatrics yeah. all the time. And, yeah, I, th- I think that um, uh, there's there's not much kind of, um, there's not a lot of swash, swashbuckling entrepreneurs, you know, like <laughs> yeah. Alan Bond and stuff. There's yeah, not yeah, that yeah. anymore. <clears throat> um, Almost a cultural change. I think so, and I, you know, I think that's reflected to some extent in all the money going into ETFs. People aren't actually people are just kind of want to be passive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, ETF is a passive type of investing. Yeah, you know, it's becoming the dominant form of investing now. Yeah. So it's kind of um, you know, and people are saying, "Oh, look, it's all too hard. I'll just I'll just go with the market." You want the thrill back? <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Um, you know, it is as a journalist, it's less interesting. You know? yeah. So in, in that time as well, you've seen the rise of pension funds. Uh, in Australia, we have super, but globally, you know, trillions of dollars of pension assets have been saved. Do you think that's changed the market in any way? Um, and maybe, you know, all that money going into passive and in the big companies has sort of quieted the, 
the vicissitudes of the market? Uh, yeah, well, um, well, look, obviously, you know, I, mean, I can only talk about Australia, really. I think that, you know, there's, there's clearly a trend towards the ageing of the population everywhere and people are saving for retirement and, you know, there's lots of pension assets everywhere. In Australia, it's um, obviously mandatory, so there's huge amounts of money. It's now up to 2.2 or $3 trillion of money in going to super, which um, uh, was fine. There's lots of that, lots of money going there. Um, it's being conservatively run, then it's not going much into... You know, into what you might call interesting investments yeah. like venture capital or infrastructure. Mm. It's pretty conservative, um, and there's a lot of self-managed super fund money, and a lot of that's just sitting in cash and ETFs. And so, yeah. you know, that used to look. I, I don't quite know what to make of all this, to be honest. The um, before uh, the superannuation system was set up in 1992 by Paul Keating, uh, most of the superannuation or retirement savings or retirement um, income was provided by defined benefit funds rather than defined contributions or accumulations and that the big the, the really the shift that occurred was from employers and, and life officers and so on guaranteeing people a certain income in retirement which is what the way the system used to work to being that we all took take risk now we all have to basically do our own thing whether it's we give the money to a super fund or we run it ourselves we're all kind of exposed now to risk in the market whereas mm. we weren't before and so um you know, I think one of the things that occurred is that people were kind of comfortable with taking that risk between sort of 19, mid-90s until, uh, you know, for 12 or 13 years until uh, we started to see decline. So year 2000, US stock market crashed, recovered, um, not all the way, and then 2008, everyone lost a lot of money. Yeah. You know, and so... I think that that was really the 2008 was really the first big time in Australia where everyone who had been shunted into accumulation super funds out of defined benefit funds had suddenly realised that they were um, you know that they were actually exposed to risk mm. yeah. and they saw the risk that they were exposed to this and the risk was to their own um, life in retirement mm. you know. So it was no longer kind of academic or theoretical. Yeah. It was real, yeah. you know, which is well, one little microcosm of that was Percy Allen and the market timing newsletter where he lost his money, decided to do something about protecting people from that happening in future. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's what I'm trying to do too. I'm trying to get people to take long-term positions, particularly young people, saving for the long term. Don't worry about short-term volatility, but, but you know, focus on what you're doing and understand the risks that you're taking. Mm-hmm. So, Alan, in 2005, you founded Eureka Report. Uh, which is now one of Australia's um, most read investing newsletters. And then in 2016... Except I don't own it anymore. No, he sold. <laughs> and then in 2016 founded The Constant Investor, which is what you're working on at the moment. Um, what is it about the online, online newsletters that you find appealing? Uh, well, I find um, starting a business appealing. It's, uh, it's an act of great uh, optimism and faith, starting a business. Yeah. It's exciting, interesting. It's a way of uh, being creative so yeah, I like I like doing that, uh, um, but I also like writing columns. I feel very privileged to be able to appear on TV, write columns for the Australian, and to start a business. Mm. Um, it's great. Wouldn't be dead for quits. <laughs> <laughs> so with um with the sort of financial reporting that we get these days, not not so much in in newsletters and the specialised stuff, but you know the the more mainstream, you know like CNBC that kind of financial reporting. Um, do you think it's having a positive effect on people's financial literacy or do you think a lot of it's very short-term orientated and, you know, like these are the three hot stocks of the month and that, that sort of sensationalised clickbait almost reporting? Well, you're absolutely right, of course. Um, that's what it's like, but it's not different to the rest of life. That is true, yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, reporting generally is being taken over by clickbait because because it's not um, viable anymore mm. as it used to be. Yeah. Um, so you certainly shouldn't look for those kind of things for education. Mm. That's for sure. I mean, there's a lot of that going on, and um, I don't think that's going to change. Yeah. Well, hopefully, people pay for good content like like the Constant Investor. Exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're much we're we're not like that. I mean, and and part of the reason well, that's I mean, we're one of the few things where you actually pay. You have to pay for it. Mm. I mean, there's a few. There's lots of things starting up that are. Like BuzzFeed for finance, yeah, yeah. and um, and fair enough. I mean, a lot of people who are in those, a lot of my friends, people I know who have been made redundant by the newspapers, mm-hmm. are going into those kind of products and you know trying to make a living. It's tough, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get people to click on something. Yeah, 
I think I think we're seeing a trend in our generation recognizing the value in paying for content again because there was you know a long time when no one was willing to pay for anything with the internet. But I think people are starting to recognize that you pay for good content, and you see that in rising newspaper subscription numbers, and I'm sure in newsletters like yours and similar. That people are sort of the trends changing, and people are reverting back. I think that's right. Um, I think that has to. That's the way it has to be. The only way you're going to get um, sort of independence and serious uh, uh, content is by paying for it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm definitely uh, relying on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, a concept that we introduce to our listeners is the dividends, um, and it's something that you've written about and have a strong opinion on. And in a recent article in The Australian, you wrote that Australian corporate leaders have become lazy bonus hounds, churning out dividends without taking risks, and argued that the tax system, specifically dividend imputation, is largely responsible for this country's failure to have any meaningful place in the global technology revolution, and in particular, the coming AI boom. So can you just give us your thoughts on that um, and the effect that high dividend power ratios are having on our economy? Uh, well, uh, the average payout ratio in Australia is about 75%. A lot of the big companies paying out 80 90% of their profits in dividend. Um, and then they're trying to get money back when they need to spend it on something to expand or to invest. They're having to get the money back off the shareholders, either through dividend reinvestment plans or, or uh, equity raisings. Um, uh, I think it's noticeable that um, the big companies that are dominating technology globally and artificial intelligence in particular don't pay dividends. Mm -hmm. Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, IBM, um, even those that do pay a dividend like IBM, it's like um, uh, 10 or 15% of their profit goes out in dividend no more. Now, the culture in Australia because of dividend imputation is that companies are there for, the purpose of a company is to pay you an income. That's the whole purpose. America, the purpose of a company is to grow. Uh, and to, you know, to employ people and to, you know, uh, develop exports and so on. So I just think that we've gone down the wrong track in Australia um, by, t by turning these companies into kind of ATM cash machines for uh, people looking for income. Now, uh, <clears throat> I, I get that there's an argument the other way. A lot of people have got stuck into me since that column. Um, <laughs> Uh, and fair enough, uh, I think it's an interesting and, and good debate to have. Yeah. You know, I'm not, uh, um, and I can, uh, as I say, I can acknowledge the, the counterpoint, which is that uh, companies tend to just waste the money. You know, they keep it, um, and look at BHP, it keeps wasting money on big projects. Yeah. And so shareholders, fair enough, they say, listen, just give us the money, we'll waste it instead. <laughs> You know, yeah. so there's 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 a there is a, a solid argument for companies paying the money out. Now, the thing is that most companies earn a return on equity in Australia in excess of twelve percent. Some you know mostly fifteen. The banks are earning fifteen percent return on equity. A lot of good companies are earning twenty percent return on equity. You, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get that sort of return anywhere else mm. with your money. Taking your money, you take your money out. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, you know, yes, it's it's not entirely tax free, but you've got the company tax um, taken out of it, so there's so it's less tax, um, but there's still a bit of tax on it. Um, and then you've got to put it somewhere where you're going to get better than fifteen percent return on equity. You're not going to do that, really. Mm. You know, you put it back into the share market, um, and uh, you know you'll, uh, you'll be lucky to get over time seven or eight percent. 
So you might as well leave it in there. That's what Warren Buffett always says. He never pays a dividend in his life. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't like dividends. Doesn't want if he invests in companies, he doesn't want them to pay dividends mm. because he says uh, if I like a company, I want to, I want them to keep the money and and keep investing in what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a really um, sort of a I don't know. It's a strategy of, of despair in some ways. We're saying, well, listen, you know, we, we like your company. We'll invest in it, but for Christ's sake, don't keep the money. <laughs> give us the <laughs> yeah. money back. Everything. Everything you make, you've got to give us. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. And the reason I call them lazy bonus hounds is that, um, is that executive bonuses um, are based on total shareholder return, right? Total shareholder return includes dividends. If you look at the stats on most companies over the past 10 years, um, they've not had much capital return, hardly any, in terms of the average share prices. I can't remember. I, I actually did it. I mean, I think that over... 10-year period, the capital return is like zero wow. okay. on, Australia, on average of Australian listed companies, right? Mm. So the only return that they've achieved has been from dividends, yeah. Yeah. right? And so they are bonused according to the total return, mm. which is to say they're bonused on dividends and they decide on the dividends, right? So, they're, so the executives, and as we know, executives are paid an absolute shed load of money, mm. <laughs> right? And their bonuses have been great, right? Mm. But the bonuses have been based on dividends. Yeah. Well, what's going on with that? Yeah. Is, is that the same in America? Do you know? Or is their incentive structure a little bit different? And that's why the outcomes are a bit different? Well, if, in America, they're paid on total shareholder returns. Okay. But but the total shareholder returns is mostly capital gain. Yeah. So it's a bit of a cultural mostly difference growth. as well. Yeah. So yeah. what I was saying, if the if the, if the uh, Australian companies had not paid out over the past 10 years, had not paid out... 70 or 80% of their profits as dividends, the share market would be, um, I think, what was the number? A lot, 300 billion larger. Oh, really? Wow. Okay, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the share market is currently 1.7 uh, trillion. It would be two point, a bit more than 2 trillion yeah. in size. All the companies would be larger. Mm. Everyone would own more yeah, of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the, the, yeah. and, and also companies, Australian companies like Telstra or others, uh, would be much in more of a position to be global champions because they'd have more cash, more more yeah. investment. Yeah. And so the fact that they've all, they've disgorged so much of their profits over the past ten years um, as dividends has meant that they've kind of had to just stay where they are in Australia. At the same time, uh, you know, companies like Amazon and and so on have just taken over the world mm-hmm. uh, by reinvesting all of their money. Do you see it changing? No. Yeah. I don't. I don't think that's going to change. I'm sort of regretting that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny that you mentioned Telstra though, because since you wrote the article, they did cut their dividend, and you know it was days and days worth of noise for their CEO. And you know, if other company CEOs see that, there's a pretty strong disincentive to follow their lead just because of the public outcry that will follow. Yeah, but I, look, they cut their, their dividend payout ratio back from 100% to 70%. Mm, yeah, it's still pretty yeah, high. 75, it's still... Yeah. yeah, it's got a long way to go. You yeah. know, and I, they, are, they will have to cut the dividend more. Mm, yeah, yeah, competitive times. Simply because their profit's falling, it's going yeah. to fall. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I pointed out in that article that Telstra wants to become a, a technology business. That's what they're calling themselves now. They're trying to say that we're going to achieve growth by being in, in technology. But they're up against global companies mm-hmm. that don't pay dividends. Yeah. That reinvest all their profits back mm-hmm. in the business. Mm-hmm. You know, they're uh, kidding themselves up. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we touched on the JFC before, but um, something that we hear more and more these days is where the market's fully valued, you know, there's no there's no value left. Um, do you see any similarities between, you know, the run ups to eighty seven or O one or two thousand and eight and the market now? Or do you think it's a bit of a different situation? Uh, well, it's all always different. You know, I can't remember who said it, but they said someone said history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Mm-hmm. So there is there are similarities, and um, the, the American market in particular is reasonably expensive. There's been a lot of investment in uh, the Nasdaq stocks, the technology stocks. Uh, they're not as expensive as they were in uh, two in um, late 1999, early 2000, but they're uh, obviously quite expensive. Um, the Australian market is a little bit expensive, but not much. So. There's no kind of basis for thinking, particularly in Australia, that there's going to be a crash. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, um, things are different in the sense that there's a lot more debt now in the world. Mm. Um, there, 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, differences that may lead to a, a reasonably big correction. That's possible. Mm. But, but, you know, who knows? Mm. Yeah. Sticking with the JFC, are there any sort of major lessons from that that the average investor can take going forward if it were to occur again? I suppose the main lesson is that it can happen, mm. you know, that um, you need to be aware that it can happen, that uh, you need to, you know, follow Warren Buffett's um, dictum of uh, be uh, uh, greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. So if you see that the world is becoming um, greedy or over-hyped, that's the time to wind back if you can. It's very difficult to do those things, but mm. you know, that's the time to do it. You've stated that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are a scam and they're run by anarchists, uh, yet you see value in the underlying blockchain technology. Uh, and interestingly enough, Greg Medcraft, I think yesterday, um, said something similar when he was talking about how banks won't be deposit holders in the next 10 or 20 years because central banks will use distributed ledgers to be the deposit holders for general the general population. So, with that in mind, like, what what do you think about cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and where do you, where do you see it going in the next sort of Look, twenty I years? I, I wouldn't begin to ex- uh, claim to be an expert on this, this stuff. I just don't yeah. I find it hard to get my head around it, like a lot of people do. Mm. <clears throat> but um, uh, it it seems like uh, blockchain is a um, powerful piece of technology or software. It seems to likely to uh, be around for a while. And it's likely to be used by various people. I mean, people are using it to create markets for electricity, um, yeah. like you know, markets for lots of different things. So um, clearly, it's going to be an important piece of technology. And I think that um, um, it's even possibly going to be used by central banks to uh, as a basis for um, existing currencies. Mm. Exactly how that works, I, I couldn't begin to explain <laughs> or understand. But you know, that that seems a lot of a lot of central banks. I think including Australia's are investigating how to base existing currencies on blockchain distributed technology, mm. distributed ledger uh, technology, and, and that seems to be quite interesting. As for Bitcoin and Ethereum and um, Bitcoin Cash and the whole the, and the, the hundreds of yeah, other of cryptocurrencies, yeah. it seems to me very unlikely that, that any of them is going to become what you might call legal tender or an actual currency. I can't imagine how that would yeah. um, play out. Mm. Um, Apart from the fact that they're volatile and the value is kind of impossible to uh, trust, I mean, yeah, I, I can't imagine how that would... And I, in fact, think that at some point governments will probably have to um, ban them mm. as as money. I mean, mm. or say that they will never be money. Yeah. You can play with them if you like, mm. um, but not don't expect that it'll turn into money. I think the reason that people are paying 3000 or even $4,000 for a Bitcoin yes. is because they think it'll become money at some point. Yeah, right. Mm. It's, um, Otherwise, there's no other reason for doing it, and I think that they're wrong. Mm. It's just a lot of it would be blind speculation as yeah. well, just running with the crowd. Because even even if it became money, you're paying four thousand dollars for one bitcoin. Like, where does where do you think that like the value of that coin actually comes from? Even if it became legal tender, like that. That's where my confusion over the whole thing is. Well, it's because I presume it's because it's. Um uh, the, the number is going to be limited. The number is limited. They've, they've created or mined mm. 16 million out of 21 million. So there's going to be a limit of 21 million. Uh, and then at that point, particularly if it's money, then it has to be divided up mm. into smaller and smaller yeah, yeah. pieces. And therefore, if you own one Bitcoin, uh, that's divided into a million pieces so that it can, uh, you can buy coffee with it, then you know, your Bitcoin's going to be worth $100,000. That, yeah. uh, that, I mean, and I don't think the people who are speculating on it are all complete idiots. No, no. There's so so what's going on, the question is what's going on in their heads. Mm. And the answer is, it seems to me, that they think that's going to happen. Yeah. That they think that it is going to be um, able to be used as a currency. It is going to be divided into a lots of little pieces so that you can buy small things with it. Mm. You don't have to buy something that's four thousand dollars. Yeah. You're gonna have to be able to you have to be able to buy a coffee with it. So therefore it's gonna be divided into lots of little pieces and you know in ten years time when they've got twenty one million and that's it. Mm. Then um, you know each one's gonna be worth uh, a million bucks. Yeah. Well we'll say four thousand dollars might be cheap then yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what they think. Yeah. I think they're wrong but yeah. You know, I've been wrong before too, yeah. as I think you're going to point out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, in 2011, you 
gave some advice to, well, you, you said to your Eureka Report subscribers that you were reducing your exposure to equities, possibly to zero, because you thought that there was going to be a major sell-off, panic sell-off. Um, firstly, can you explain what you thought was going to trigger that sell-off? Um, and then the second part to the question is that, you know, since then, we've seen a bull market continue and some, you know, records of consecutive quarters without recession. So I'm wondering if you can give economic scenarios for the following. What what would it require for this bull run to continue for, say, at least another two years? And then on the flip side, what are some economic conditions that you may see required for a correction to occur and, and sort of what's more likely? Well, that's a series of questions. Um, so uh, obviously I got it wrong then. That was a mistake. Um, uh, obviously I was the biggest loser out of that because <laughs> I did do what I said I was going to do mm, mm. Um, and I shouldn't have done that. Um, so uh, what did I think was going to happen? I, th- I mean, I, it was perhaps uh, like a lot of people, I was kind of really nervous after the GFC and I thought it was going to happen again. What I hadn't taken into account was um, the central banks just flooding the world with liquidity mm. and cutting interest rates and leaving interest rates where they are and in particular the European Central Bank the following year coming out and saying we're going to do whatever it takes to uh, preserve the euro and they then and that really was was when when Mario Draghi said that that was the kind of turning point and that was the end of any prospect of a of a big correction right so it was really the the, the entry of the European I mean at that point um, the Fed had been uh, doing QE and had cut interest rates, but really this, the European Central Bank coming in and doing the same thing, and then eventually cutting rates to um, cutting interest rates to below zero to minus 0.4 percent where they are now. Um, you know that's been what turned around. So I kind of didn't think that would happen. Mm, right. Um, and I was wrong, and a lot of people were. Mm. Um, that doesn't. That's no comfort, <laughs> really. Um, so. Uh, Really, for the past 10 years, particularly since then, um, uh, the markets of the world, investors everywhere, have been relying on central banks yeah. to, um, to misprice credit. That's what they've been doing. They've been um, uh, reducing the price of credit to unnatural levels, which has bolstered the prices of assets. Mm. What it hasn't done is achieve what the central bank's trying to achieve, which is um, uh, consumer price inflation um, and uh, higher income wages hasn't resulted in those things. All that the central banks have managed to do is, is inflate asset prices. Which, I mean, is, is dangerous going forward, wouldn't you think? Yeah. So, uh, but, the, but the belief was that that would lead to higher consumer price inflation yeah. and lead to investment in the economy and lead to higher wages and employment and so on. And that really hasn't occurred. Do you think it's a, a major concern for many people or is it just something that um, is part and parcel of what's going on and well I think I think we're entering uncharted territory really when the central banks start to rebalance rewind back the stimulus well, nobody really knows what's, I mean the, the the Federal Reserve has started to increase interest rates it's increased rates three times and um, hasn't yet started to wind back the um, balance sheet the expansion of its balance sheet which is the Reverse quantitative easing it hasn't started to do that, but it has increased interest rates, and that hasn't caused a big problem yet. When uh, Australia might at some point, Australia is going to start interest, increasing interest rates. Will that lead to a big uh, problem? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Depends how careful they are, I guess. Mm, interesting. But it's but these are different times. You know, we've got we've had ten years of extraordinary central bank intervention. Mm which has led to a huge increase in asset prices, not, you know, not in the last 12 months or so, but certainly over that period, which at some point is going to turn around. Do you think Sydney and Melbourne are in a housing bubble? Or no, I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's a bubble. Um, I, think, um, I think the problem with housing is that um, it's the only asset class that, um, that we want to live in. <laughs> True. <laughs> no, but if you think about it, like yeah. uh, housing has two purposes. Mm. It's an investment asset mm. and it's something we live in. Most investment assets, whether they're bonds or stocks or whatever, we don't, we don't have to worry about <laughs> buying them to live in. We need, yeah. So but the problem, so if, if housing wasn't something we lived in, then that'd go up and down and nobody would worry, right? Mm. And it'd be only a question of what the yield was and, and so on mm. as an investment. Mm. The trouble is that become because of um, interest rates being so low, uh, it's become too hard to save for a deposit for them because yeah. the banks require 20% and they're expensive now. The houses are expensive. So the, the problem of uh, saving for a deposit 
has become a major social issue. Yeah. Um, and has become, a, in a sense, a generational equity issue, mm. um, which I'm sure you guys are only too yeah. aware of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it actually is, if you can actually buy a house, uh, the repayments are okay because interest rates are so low. Yeah. Mm. So it isn't a repayments issue. It's getting there. It's getting there. Yeah. It's the saving for the deposit, which... Um, so the only solution, and, and unless housing prices come down, which I don't believe they will, um, the only solution is uh, what you might call early inheritance. Mum and dad helping. Which is kind of, and the problem with, you know, part of the thing is that the problem of unaffordable housing is being exacerbated a bit by the fact that mum and dad are living so long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have we have um, longevity now, so that uh, kids are kids are getting to middle age before their parents die. It's getting too late. Yeah. <laughs> well, 65 and his parents are still alive. So. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I'm 65 and my mum's still alive. Yeah. I can't wait that long. <laughs> well, you know, you're done then. Yeah. It's like it's over. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, that's the problem. Mm. And so I don't know what the solution to that is, but one solution obviously is a big fall in house prices, but that would be very that'd be a big dislocation to the economy and, and I don't think it's going to happen anyway because the demand is still quite strong, whether it's from overseas or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's and the interest rates being low, there's quite a lot of investment demand. And so, to some extent, uh, everyone has to get their head around renting mm-hmm. um, long-term, which other countries have managed to do. So maybe we do that. The problem with that is, apart from the emotional issue of um, wanting to own your own house, uh, what happens if you get to retirement and you don't own a house? Mm-hmm. That's an issue which you need to think about now. Um, <laughs> a lot to think about, and not not many easy answers. I think is the yeah. the deal with housing. That's it. Yeah. Um, so now we'll get to our final two questions, and these are the questions that we end each interview with. Uh, so the first one is: there a must read book that you would read that you would recommend? Uh, it can be financial or just just in general. So many. I have trouble thinking of. Yeah. I mean, feel free to give us a few if if you have a few. This is a great time to give a plug to some of your books as well, if you like. <laughs> oh, well, I've done a few books. Um, so my book, obviously, <laughs> whatever the hell it was called, I can't really remember. Now. Uh, chart, charts of the World. Oh, the Charts, yeah. There was, there was the Charts book I did with Paul. But yeah. That was definitely the coolest last year. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there's been some guides to investing and stuff yeah. that I've done. Um, they were a while ago, though. So yeah. Might be out of date now. Um yeah, look, Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell is an important book, I think. Um, Nassim Taleb's... Uh, Black Swan. Black Swan. Yeah. And the, the, the subsequent book, actually, is more interesting and important. I just can't remember what it's called now. We'll look it up. Yeah, we'll, we'll, put, it we'll put it on our uh, show notes for the listeners. It's interesting that you say um, Taleb, though, because a lot of investors that I've listened to in interviews and stuff um, have recommended that book. So I'm starting to get the impression that that's a must-read for anyone interested in investing. Yeah, as I say, I kind of yeah. The next one was called Anti Fragile. Oh, okay. So yeah. Black Swan, the Black Swan was 2007, Anti Fragile 2012. So I think um, uh, uh, a lot happened in those. And I liked the 2012 was in some ways more important. Yeah, okay. But they, yeah. They're both really worth reading. And look, there's lots of different books about um, Warren Buffett. I mean, he's never written a book himself, but there are a lot of books that talk about his, his thoughts, yeah. the, way he, um, the way he operates and the way... And so any, any one of those really that, that are good, you should read because he's just, he's quite clear about it, except when he gets onto ETFs. Forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> Rip those fades out. Yeah. <laughs> just ignore that stuff. <laughs> Apart from that, it's yeah. all good. Yeah. When you get to the ETF stuff, just print out your article from the Australian and stick well, it over. Well, ETFs aren't in his book. He's only said that recently. Yeah. 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 That, um, that bet that he made with the hedge fund manager um, where he took the index and the hedge fund manager took the five managed funds, that's sort of been a really visible like driver of, thing, of people yeah. to ETFs because sure. it's so clear that... He, the ETF outperformed the hedge funds, but I mean, he picked a great year yeah, great to, to, take, the to st- take the ETF. Like, pick, started it in two thousand and eight, and it's just enjoyed a, a bull run for sure. nine years. <laughs> That's it. How yeah. convenient! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, final question, and this is for our listeners: If there's any advice that you could give to those that aren't investing at the moment or just starting to, 
um, to sort of help them get get on their way or get in the right mindset. Sort of, what would that be? Well, if you're on a, if you're interested in companies in, in directly investing in companies, which I think is not a bad idea, invest in companies you know or use the products of, or you have a sense of, and so that you enjoy it. You 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 don't invest in a company that you don't think is interesting. Um, and if it's a company, especially if it's a company you know and are using their products, that's a good way to start. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, if you want to just sort of make sure that you get a decent return, go for a, a fund manager who has a good track record. Mm. Um, I mean, it is true that future performance is no guide, to, so past performance isn't a guide to future performance. That is true, they'll always tell you that, but it's all you've got. Yeah. Past yeah. performance is all you've got, and, you know, somebody who's got 15 or 20% return over 10 years uh, clearly knows how to do it. Yeah. And don't invest in ETFs. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, you know, do it with your eyes open. Understand yeah. what you're doing. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Don't don't expect to get other than anything other than a boring market. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the, the advantage of an ETF is it's low cost. That's true. Uh, but sometimes you get what you pay for. Thanks, Alan. We've really appreciated you giving us your time. We've had a, a request from one of our listeners, though, that if you could just sign off with your signature that you do on the ABC News, <laughs> that would be fantastic. And that's finance. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation.